0: All right, so our text today is John chapter 11, verses 45 to 51. Danielle, thank you for reading that for us. Oh, thanks. These subtle your slides are not up. Thank you very much. So uh, today is part three or four of our vision series. We do this every single year. The reason we do this is because we want to be, stay centered on those things which are central. I had a discussion this week with um, multiple people, <laughs> so... Uh, the the party shall remain anonymous and probably someone you haven't met, who uh, is a person that was really really caught up in what I would call um, um, trivial things. There's there's really great points. In fact, I have I have a really great person I love to death. I'm sure they won't watch this sermon, but whenever you want to have a scriptural discussion with them, they want to throw you some mean curveball of Old Testament trivia. You know, the eleventh son of Israel, right? Like. Oh, Ah, you know, like, uh, where is Ephraim located at? Ah, ah. You know, these kind of things. And and so uh, what what can be tricky is that sometimes because the Bible is thick, we we can say, all right, I want to understand it or know it, and then we dive deep into, into trivial things. But here's the nice piece. All through the Old Testament and New Testament, God is making clear things that are central and primary, things that are the, the bones that everything hangs off of. He uses words like the first and greatest. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then if we don't notice that, he says on these things hang all the law and prophets. So those are, those are telltale signs saying this is really important. And this is what we understand first and, and understand other things by. Uh, time and time again, when we come to the topic of Christ. We see it through the Old Testament and New Testament. Christ is central. He is how we understand everything out of the scriptures. And so for Vision Week for us, Vision Month, It's our time for us as a church to recenter ourselves. We want to recenter ourselves as pastors, as leaders of the church. We want to recenter ourselves as everyone who's part of the church. And so that's why we do it. First week, we started out the gospel. And the gospel is not only simply the way all people would come to know Jesus, the gospel being this, the great message of of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, that though God made us, we all ran away from him. And we are in darkness and broken and separated. We are both guilty of our sin, and we are victimized and that we are under the power of Satan. But then Christ comes. Christ comes and tells us that we are in dire straits, tells us that we can't self-fix, tells us that we can actually be forgiven of that and be brought back to God. And so he tells us about that, and then he marches himself to die on the cross, rise again, doing the thing that needed to be done in order to give us that, because he just couldn't bro us a moral mulligan. Okay, So he actually died and rose again to give us the opportunity to not simply escape death, but to escape death living, separation from God, now to be close to him, to know him, and to shocker them all in the New Testament, to not only be with God, but actually be adopted as a son or daughter by God. That's it. So you go from A, option, darkness, separated from God, B, a very child of God. So the gospel is how we become that. There is a promise. Whoever calls upon his name shall be saved. Not whoever cleans themselves up, whoever trims up their addictions, whoever gets smarty, rich, nice, but those who call upon the Lord. He came to save sinners like me and like you. And so that is the gospel. But the gospel is not only simply the way that we come to know Christ, it is the unfolding grid over how we see all things. It is how things actually are. And so we see all of life through the grid of the gospel. That was work week one. Week number two then is because he's come to us and he's made us sons and daughters. We are not made a daughter and put in a mason jar with a lid on it and just pickled and put over here as like a, just like a bunch of specimens of sons and daughters. He brings us into this great, great family that he loves dearly. Loves dearly and was purchased by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, that works out in a church sense in this. We aren't just a group, and we aren't a Sunday morning service, and we're clearly not a building, praise God. Um, we are something totally different. Every single person that puts their trust in Jesus Christ becomes part of God's family. That family transcends time and nations, but it's part of the family. And that family always works its way out into a physical nature. It's impossible to be theoretically part of God's actual family. So when you come to know Jesus, you must physically be part of God's physical family, which is the church. That's why we have little churches all over the place. And we are one of a whole bunch of them in this, in this town and around the world. So we are, therefore, how do we function? We just can't be nice and cordial and be on a really nice email list to do those kind of things. Really, God's designed us to be family. So then God calls pastors and church leaders to structure the church so the church can actually experience being spiritual family not a spiritual association, not just spiritual community, but way higher than that, to be brothers and sisters in the Lord. To this new level of beauty and uncomfortability, right? So, so then he starts using words like the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. John 17, the great prayer, Jesus praying to the Father that we all be one, that our hearts would be knit. And we get in church, if we are living rightly within church, we get to this point where you know it, there's these amazing joys and scary things that happen simultaneously because we're pretty close to each other. And once we get close to each other, we, can't, we have to quit faking things and we can actually see the end of our growth and we can see our sin and they can see ours. And then I'll sin against Chris and Chris has to forgive me. Otherwise, he has to run away or beat me up or something like that. Um, but there has to be this new land of grace. has This new place where the Spirit of God has to give us one heart and one mind because when we get that close, Ultimately, we won't like it in our flesh. It becomes uncomfortable. And then we got to share money sometimes, and we got to share time. Sometimes we, we don't sleep. Sometimes we get calls in the middle of the night to go be with each other, to care for one another. Sometimes we do things way outside of our comfort zone because we are now God's family. And He has shown us how to do it because He is the one who came in the middle of our night and came to us in our darkness, Right? And, and just taught us and poured out his love and teaching. And like, no one's listening to him. No one's listening to him. Even then he's giving them fish and bread. They're like, yeah, yeah, I want more fish and bread. More fish and bread, right? And they just ask of him, ask of him. They're not listening to him. And you get all the way to the end of the cross, right? Where Jesus experienced the first and macro case of church hurt in all of history. Where these people that have followed him this whole time, he's been feeding them and caring for them, just like scatter like roaches in fear. And they're not listening to his priorities. And so they're lopping off people's ears and all kinds of stuff. And then, and then they're denying him the next moment as he's on the cross. And they just go their way. And Jesus stands there in love, in perfect love, perfect familial love, and hangs on that cross and endures it for you and for me, potentially our <laughs> us being his great brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So, Jesus is the first one who has shown us what it means to be a spiritual family. So that's what we are. It's a local church. We're a spiritual family. So that's why in our church we have these groups called missional communities. And that's what we say. Until you get a missional community, you're just a b- really beloved visitor. We love you, and you're beloved, but that's where we're going to live that out. And that's why our groups are kind of old and young, male and female, and, and we're trying to live out this family identity God's given us. And sometimes it's a really amazing, sometimes it's really hard, and sometimes it's like, mind-bendingly joyful, uh, but we invite you into it. We invite you to come be with a bunch of people who've been forgiven by Jesus, who Christ is continually reforming more and more into His image. So, the gospel, the family, and today is the third part of the vision series, which is our Father's mission, our Father's mission. And so, I picked that text in John 11, 45 to 51 today, because... um, I've read it several times this year, and it struck me. It's a, it's a beautiful passage to me. Um, and, Danielle, thank you for reading for it. So if it, would you please look in there in John 11 right now, John 11, 45 to 51. Context being, um, Jesus is just, he's just about ready to go to the cross, right at the end of Jesus' ministry. And he has done this amazing thing. He has raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. No one's no one's even suggesting it's a fake, his enemies aren't even suggesting it's fake. It's like a known reality amongst like Jewish people and Gentile people, believers and non-believers. Everyone knows it happens. And so option B, because the leaders of Israel were not authentically followers of God at that time, they're like, well, we can't deny it happened. What do we do about it? Because it's gonna bug us because Because people are going to start following him. And so they're having this meeting. That's where 45 comes into it. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're supposed to be the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." Legitimate concern, legitimate concern. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all." He's he's basically saying you've got a bad, bad plan. You know nothing. You don't know what you need to do. Verse fifty. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. So there he slides it across the assassination suggestion that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish he did not say this of his own accord but being high priest of that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation so one of the beautiful things you see god doing in the old testament and new testament men me- mean it for evil but god means it for good right back in genesis 50 20 you can check it out later people mend it for evil but behind it god is meaning it for good and here caiaphas meaning it for evil God meaning it very much for good. And then there's this amazing thing that I personally love watching God do in the, in the, in the, in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, when people, <laughs> against their own will, prophesy on behalf of God. Right, this one here, this guy is anti-God, and God's like, watch this, right? And he makes him mouth words, even though he's intending evil things, makes him prophesy that Jesus is gonna do this. I love that when he does that. And what he's prophesying, according to verse 15 and 51, is that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And that's an essential in the gospel piece, right? That's why, you, that's why in the gospel you can't better yourself or clean up or something like that. There's got to be a death. And in the gospel, the death is the death of one for the salvation of many. So him not being on it says it, that one person should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And it says he did not say this on a court, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. So because of his role, even as an unbeliever, the Spirit of God prophesied through him because of the role that he held. And so we see at the core of this, this gospel message coming up unwillingly, unwittingly through Caiaphas. And he says that one would die for many, and particularly that one would die for the nation, the nation being Israel, the people that God had covenanted covenant with to work in and continue to work in and pour out his love through. And then he says what he's doing with them is that he is gathering into one the children of God. So listen, listen to the prophecy of the Spirit of God through Caiaphas, that one dies for many, and what he's doing is he's gathering children. So that was last week, family. Once again, gospel brings out children. It doesn't bring out the dogs of heaven. It doesn't bring out, like, just detached citizens of heaven, but all the way to children. So he's been doing that the whole time. But then we see a glimpse of the mission of God. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So notice in verse 51 and 52, he talks about one dying for the whole nation. And then 52, not for the nation only. So this is not just Jewish people, okay? The nation of the Jews, the Israel, Israelites. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So one of the big... Uh, new things really is unfolded and it was a scandal in the, in the New Testament is that the gospel was not simply going to continue to live in Israel, shall we say, but that God is kicking the walls down, bringing it to the world, to all the people of the different nations. But here we see this amazing word in that. He is gathering into one children who are scattered abroad. And those are not yet people who know Jesus, but are called the children of God. So here we see the father and son's mission. Gathering into one, not solo saving, not pickling, not putting us on individually on, 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 the, on the, the, the shelves, but gathering into one, the one great family, gathering us, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So the father is once again showing us that he has a great fatherly love. This is the great father going after his beloved children. He really wants them. He wants them so bad that he sent his f- son, the firstborn son, to die and rise again for him. He wants them that bad. He's going out after them. And 2,000 years later, there's J.W., right? In the, in the text, you can't really see it, but J.W. Krewal is sitting right there, one of the scattered children of God, some mix of Norwegian and German or, I don't know, and 2,000 years later, he is one of those scattered children of God on the mind of God that God is going to get. And if you know Jesus Christ is one of you too, you're there in this text 2,000 years before. Our father is into this. He's going after his kids. I was thinking about this the other day like, I don't know, let's just say uh, you're driving through, uh, let's say you got a family, right? And you're driving through Hungarian village down here, it's right below you. Marion Village, and right before Reeb Hossack, um, and let's say you got a shoddy door in your minivan, and you're driving along, and, and uh, you take the corner, and all of a sudden, you dump out one of your kids. You don't know. Right there. <laughs> they roll out, and the word is on next door, hey, somebody, we got this kid in our house. We're not publishing our address, but it belongs to someone, and we get the word here that your kid, no, no, let's make it up. Mary's kid is somewhere in, Mer- in the Hungarian village. I- I'm just telling you what we would do. We would leave, and we'd go start knocking on doors. We're like, well, dude, let's go find him. Like, well, like, let's go find this lost child of Mary's. And we'd go. And you know what? Sometimes you would knock on a door, and people would, like, blow you off, flip you off. One of us might get bitten by a dog. We don't care. There's a kid to find, Right? And I just guarantee you we do it physically for each other in this family. But I think the picture in this text is amazing. This is what Jesus was sent for. To gather into one the children, I mean, listen to the words, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what is God doing? He's gathering for himself the children scattered abroad in, in, in times and people. And he is the father who perfectly and passionately is caring about gathering these kids It doesn't say who the kids are. I looked in there. J.W. is not in the text. So we don't know the names and the faces and the times. And another thing about J.W. was there was a time when J.W. didn't know Jesus. And now there's a time when J.W. does know Jesus. And so there's a time element this that we can't even figure out. So we don't know who it is or when it will be. But he wants us to remember that we are his beloved children. And he wants to invite us to obediently join with him on that ambition. So our first piece is this. The father and the son share a mission. The father and the son have a mission, and they share that common mission, which is to gather the scattered children abroad. Number two, Jesus has given us a part in their mission. So since this is a vision Sunday, I'm not going to just stick in one text. I'm going to move around a little bit. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles now. I'm going to ask you to turn two times, okay, or scroll, whatever you're going to do. Um, go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Fifth book in the New Testament. Written by Luke. Picks up, it's kind of like Luke part 2. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, all right, I, my words here, and I apologize to you on our Spanish notes back there. I, I discovered today, de- so when we were on our notes, we also copied them in Spanish, uh, for the Morado family, and uh, I noticed I learned something in Spanish today that the word for grand and great are the same words. We have grand and great English, but I think they're both like the same word in Spanish. So, anyway, my note still makes sense over there. Sorry about that, <laughs> noun. Um, so first one here, I'm to call it the Grand Commission. We have the Great Commission, most of us know about that, but here's the Grand Commission. Acts one eight. I call it the Grand Commission because it alliterates well. Thank you, John Hansel. All right, uh, Acts one eight. These are Jesus' words right before he, like, flies off in the sky. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. Sorry to say utter there. My old old version I memorized. So Jesus is telling his followers there, this is his last words before he literally flies off, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm commissioning you, like, and I, what I want to help, help you do is I want to I help you think through motivation today when we talk about the mission of Jesus. Like, Jesus stands there and goes, I'm calling you to be my witnesses. You're going to testify about me. Tells to these people here standing here, right, the disciples and those around him. You're going to be my witness when the Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be in Jerusalem. So where this is spoken of, this is concentric circles, like where you're at right now, then the zone around you, the zone around you, and the last zone is Ohio the uttermost parts of the earth, okay? (laughs) It is from here, right? We literally are in that zone, okay? So we're in the fourth ring on this text here. So you're going to be my witnesses, so you're going to go testify about me. You're going to go speak about me. That's the way he describes it. You're going to be my witness, witness to who I am and what I did. Look then, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, first book in the New Testament, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and that's the last flip flip I'm going to do today, so... In case you're getting blisters on your fingers already, um, it's okay. Matthew 28, 18 and 20 is really a, a, um, maybe a little more detailed breakdown of this great commissioning. This one is called the Great Commission, classic name given for it. And it says in Matthew 18, sorry, 28, 18, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So how do you do do it? How how do you be his witness? Well, he says the way you do it here is you make disciples of them. So when you're witnessing of Jesus, some people are going to go, Yes. whole bunch are going to go, no. But some are going to say, yes. So what do you do with the yesers? He says, don't like just high-five them and go. D- uh, don't stuff them in a church service. Make disciples of them. Like Help them understand and know me. So And what you do, how you, there's kind of three ways here that you actually do that. Number one, you got to go to them. Uh, don't just sit there sipping your coffee and say, God, just bring them all to me. There, there is a us going to them that's there, right? We go out. And number two then, We teach them, we baptize them, so when a person hears of Christ, we baptize them, they trust him, we take them, Daniel did it a couple weeks ago, we do it in our fancy horse trough right here, where a person says, I'm all in, I've trusted in Jesus, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace, know me as belonging to Christ, boom, we baptize you in the water. And the third thing it says there in verse 20 is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this is ongoing discipleship, where it is that gospel worldview, you're helping them see life through the lens of the gospel, which means following The amazing, wonderful, spotless, wise, loving, merciful King Jesus. To live as a citizen of the perfect King. To really follow him from the heart and to live in all the joys of that. And then he finished off and says, And I'm going to be with you always, even in the end of the age. So I'm not sending you out there by yourself. I'll be with you. I'll go with you. Now, later on we understand this through the sending of the Spirit. The Spirit be with us. You're not going to ever see Jesus show up in the coffee shop next to you. But the Spirit of God, better yet, in Jesus' own words, better yet than Jesus sitting next to you in the coffee shop is the Spirit of God being in you. It is more helpful for you to have the Spirit in you than Jesus being next to you by his own design right now. So how do we make how do we be his witnesses? We do it by making disciples. And how do we do that? We go to them. Number two, baptize them. Three, teaching them this ongoing process, right, of helping them understand what it means to live as God's son or daughter, and then equipping them to be on that mission. So What I want to point out here, and and maybe this is where I want to um, maybe extract out of your mind a little bit what the idea of mission is. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you're probably, this is not new to you, the idea that there is a mission that you're connected to it. But I think often for us, when we think of the mission of Jesus, we think that it is is first a compassion-motivated mission, and then a cause-motivated mission. But in the text of the New Testament, the mission of Jesus is first rather a Savior-motivated mission and then a compassion-motivated mission. The reason mission is important is not first and foremost because my friends and my family and my neighbors have a horrible future ahead of them based upon a, a not-so-great life that they're going to live for five years or 20 more years. There's rightful compassion for that, but the leading charge of mission in the New Testament is seeing our Father and seeing His heart. Our Father has children He's going after. Our Savior then has called us to be His witnesses. Our Savior has then commissioned us to make disciples of people. God Himself is our first motivation. Second of all, compassion for hearts. It's really helpful to have the first and the second. To have the first and the second. Don't ignore the second. Don't ignore the first. Keep the first, then the second. Because as we are resting in Jesus and experiencing him more and more, realizing day after day the amazing graces and goodnesses of what it means to sit under Jesus, who's never wrong, who never lies, who never miscalculates or overestimates the value of suffering now for great pleasures forevermore, we taste greater and greater of those joys. And for those of us in this room that know Jesus, if you think about it, the sweetest things you've ever tasted in this life are the things that are directly connected to the heart and the teachings of Jesus. And the works of Jesus and the lives around us, they are the sweetest things that we have ever tasted. And those other things that we've chased up and down in this world and just stupid sin or overindulgence, going in for seconds, thirds, and fourths on blessings that aren't really ours, um, this doesn't satisfy it doesn't satisfy us at all. So as we look to him, and we've found him delightful and wonderful, and we found that father to be a father of mercy and of love and keeps forgiving us, even though, I mean, aren't you an idiot? Because I'm an idiot. Like, and as much as we're idiots, forgiveness and grace abounding and abundance and doesn't give up on us and doesn't, doesn't give up on us, is frankly beautiful. That's why sometimes when you sing the songs, like you get choked up a little bit because you're reading those, those words And you're saying his mercy is more. And you're reading those words about him not giving up on you and nothing be able to pry you out of his hands. And it's wonderful. It's it's flat out wonderful. So as you look to him and we find him wonderful, and then we find that wonderful father saying, all right, this is what I'm doing. This is what the son's doing. And the son says, okay, and I'm inviting you in on this. You're going to be part of this because you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to take the people that say yes and you're going to make disciples out of them. There's a beautiful thing we're brought into that. And then third, because of the compassion of the need of the people around us that we saw in Jesus and we see even in Paul in a second. So our third piece today is this. The mission is not intuitive. And so this is what I, I, I wanted to, first key thing I want to throw out this is I think so often when we consider the mission of Jesus. We have some really scatty thoughts about it. Um, we forget the gospel, we're going to think we're going to earn our keep by sharing the gospel with people or something or some dreadful mission that we have to do, or that you think actually the conversion of souls is something you can do. There's all kinds of things that we have in places that aren't really what the mission is. And then number two, when we think about having a heart for the mission, we usually think, often think of compassion for the lost as the primary. But it's not the primary. A heart for God, a heart for our Father, and the word, the mission of our Father, the mission of the Son, and His commission—that is our primary. And then a full, deep sense of compassion. Because you know what? Um, I sing those songs back there. I was lost. I really, really was lost, and I couldn't find my way out of it. But God did intersect with me with the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise God, He saved me. And I don't—I don't, I don't want to be the last person who goes. Well, thank you very much. I'll go run off and just like. Nibble on my salvation in my corner and not share it with the people that need it so badly because I live amongst the people who need them so badly. So compassion is real, but it is after God. Our third piece here is mission is a non intuitive. And I just have a few points here to, to pull out and show that I think might be helpful to you as we go out. Number one, um, these are unique things in the mission of God. Number one, alignment in the, in the midst of personal mess. Alignment in the midst of personal mess. He will, God will remind us again and again of who we are in Christ, affirm his love for us, and pull us into his heart, into his mind through the word. Because, because, you, know, if you might have noticed, often your heart is not into the very mission of God. The mission of God is why God made the whole universe and Jesus came and died and rose again, and why you haven't been sucked off the planet when you came to know God. There is this ongoing mission that God really cares about and the Son really cares about. And we often stray from that. We forget it. We're into the American dream or whatever dream you happen to have in your head, but we're out there versus this mission. And God graciously reminds us, like, members, I bought you, I made you, I love you, you're my son, my daughter. And he loves us enough to bring our hearts and our minds back onto point through days like this, even, as we read the scriptures every day. So he will bring our hearts back into alignment, remembering his great love for us and remembering our purpose for the world. We see this in John 12, verse 26. Him saying this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am. There will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we're going to be with the Father, our heart's going to be aligned with his. And when his heart is on mission, our heart's going to be there. It's going to be one of the works of the Spirit he does in us. Second, spiritual birth in the midst of rejection. Spiritual birth in the midst of rejection. Um, We can know from Scripture the general reception we will get from darkness. God tells us a bunch of things. We'll be called fools. We'll be belittled. We'll be slandered, judged, hated, hurt, and some of us will be killed. That will be the reception of darkness when darkness hears the word of the light. But in the midst of that are these amazing, far more amazing things. We know what to expect in the middle of all the no's. There are the yeses. The Spirit is stirring, bringing about spiritual birth of our siblings, the scattered sons and daughters of God. Up here I have Luke 10, 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. God says, I'm saving a lot of people. Like, and while the majority of people will say no, and they're not going to like me, and therefore they're not going to like you, the one who is the witness of me, I have sons and daughters out there, and I'm saving them. I'm bringing them to spiritual life. And so in the same way, let's just say you're a gold miner. Oh, let's say an opal miner today. This is in honor of Calvin today. So let's just say you're an opal miner down in, in Australia. Um, you, every shovel you put in the ground doesn't bring up an opal. You dig through a lot of rock. You make a lot of tunnels. You dig through a lot of dirt. But in the middle of that, you're expecting to find these beautiful things, these opals. And so as the message of God comes out by, from us as witnesses of Christ, we will find dirt, 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 opal. We will find more people that will say no unless we're in the midst of something um, really miraculous like the beginning of Acts chapter two when thousands at a time turn to the Lord. Christ has told us time and time again, darkness will not like you. The road is narrow. Few are those who find it. So the ratio will be low. You will find mostly no's in this world, but you will find yeses. And those yeses are beautiful. The opal is worth all the dirt to be dug around it. And to be there there in a conversation with someone, and you can't guess where it is, John chapter 3, you can't forecast where the wind goes, the Spirit's like that. Your friend isn't too smart for Jesus. Your friend isn't too hard for Jesus. Your friend isn't not known by you well enough for Jesus. Like, all that's irrelevant. That's not how God saves people. The Spirit of God moves upon people. And he breaks the hardness of their heart. He brings His information, He brings life to them, brings conviction to them, brings illumination in their mind. He does it in his time. We don't know who and we don't know when, but it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to sit there and watch God like open eyes. It's been it's so amazing. Uh, talked to a couple of you guys lately who are literally seeing this. Like you, 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 you didn't say anything, you didn't say the last person. And that person who's so seemingly cold, To the gospel for years before, all of a sudden, like, boom, it's alive. I mean, look at the people in this room. Look at the people you share fellowship with. Where did they come from? They're certainly alive now. Where did that come from? I'm telling you, they weren't born that way. There was a time when they were dead and cold to the gospel. And the Spirit of God came and brought them to spiritual life. And so our second one is spiritual birth happens in the midst of rejection, and it is gold or opal. Third, supernatural strength and weakness. Supernatural strength in weakness. The hearts you encounter are unbreakable, absolutely unbreakable by human means. You can't be nice enough to them. You can't buy them enough coffee. You can't make that social connection, earn the right to speak in their life. Puppycock. Like, you can't do this. You are utterly unable to break a human heart, to love a human heart towards Jesus. But my friends, you roll with far, far more than human means with you. The Spirit of God's in you. Your human means will never be able to save one soul. The saddest, most lonely, hungry, uneducated three-year-old, you cannot win their heart. But God can, and he is absolutely unhindered when he moves. And so he's with you. The Spirit of God is with you. This is why you can go out and be his witness and wait to see spiritual life. Not because you're smart enough now, good enough now, but because the Spirit of God is in you. And he brings life. You're way too weak. You aren't rolling with mere human means anymore. He says a couple things like this. We saw this in Matthew 28. Lo, I I am with you. I'm with you even to the end of the age. And remembering back in our text in Acts eight, he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit comes to us and dwells in us when we come to know Jesus, and that Spirit is there to help us and to do his great work through us. My fourth piece is this. Massive joys over deep hurts. Massive joys over deep hurts. Okay, so here's the deal. It'll hurt when people say no. It'll hurt when they mock you. It'll hurt when they slander you and say things about you that aren't true. And then, quite honestly, at a whole different level, when people say yes, and they become a a known son and daughter of God, forgiven by Jesus, you know what they're going to do? They're going to hurt you again. We we get this thing we call church hurt. It it came out about 10 years ago or something like that. But it's been around for a long time, right? And so you're going to find that even authentic followers of Jesus... They will hurt you. They will fail you. They will betray you at times. They'll sin against you. Um, The heartbreaking events of actually seeing the sheep of what we thought was the sheep of Jesus actually being a wolf of Satan revealed over time. Brutal things. People walking away. So you will find true hurt when you go out with the Father and he all of a sudden brings to life his sons and daughters. You'll find true hurt. You will experience church hurt. I have, um, and most of in this room have. Some of us have experienced it in very, very deep, hard, betraying ways. So the idea of what happens when you find those children of God is, the reality is, you're going to experience hurt. Because the moment that the Spirit of God came upon Johnny Eagle back there, back in that day, um, when he did, he forgave Johnny perfectly, made him justified in the books of heaven, and then started transforming John over time, over time, over time. He John did all of a sudden become like that halo that we see on John's head back there. You know? That didn't happen the first day. There is no, there's no halo effect where all of a sudden utter perfection in our hearts and our attitudes affect. There is a transformation over time. So if you're in fellowship with John, um, you know what? You're going to see God progressively changing him away from darkness that he came out of and sometimes that darkness is going to get smeared on your face it's going to hurt but what are you going to do you're going to look at that beautiful child of God back there and say well God it's not good enough for me not good enough for this saved child no if we know the father and we love the father and we love what the father is doing we understand that God has chosen to progressively change us more and more so that pain will be there but even what's better than the pain are the joys in the middle of it, are the joys in the middle of it. So I told you Jesus was the, was the OG church hurt person. Well, there's another one in the New Testament that's pretty high on the list, which is Paul. Paul travels around, gets the life beat out of him, literally, multiple times, shipwrecked, bit by snakes, you name it. He's traveling around, talking to all these Gentiles, while the home team is just beating him up to pieces. He's visiting, talking to people, and towards the end of his ministry, he's sitting there in a prison. And he goes, everyone's left me. Everyone's left me. But when you hear him talk about what he's experienced in the people of God, while he's experienced all this deep hurt from the family of God, we see some of his words in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. He says, For what is our hope or our joy or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. We've seen it in Ephesians. We're seeing it in Colossians right now. What happens is, God transforms our hearts, and we really love the other children of God because we, now we love the Father because he's given us a new heart, and so we love the ones that he loves. And, but this isn't simply new in the o- New Testament, Old Testament. Who are the saints in the lands? They're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight in Psalm 16. like, Yes, you will, if you are in God's family, experience the hurt of God's people. But way, way more than that, you will taste the joys of God's people. Um, I would just give you with all my heart that testimony. I have been hurt so many times, betrayed so many times. I'm not saying more or less than you. I'm just saying it's happened 50 years, right? It's happened. But I'll tell you what, it is nothing, nothing compared to the joys I have at all. Any day, any day. And some of those days are really, really hard. Some of those days are full of tears and like, fasting and praying. like, what do you do? And oh God, will you preserve my life and my heart and those things? Really hard days. But God's people are our glory and our joy. They're far better joys than the pains you incur. So those are are five things I wanted us to think through where the mission of God is not intuitive. Number one, alignment in the midst of personal mess. You're a mess, but God will align your heart in the middle of it. Number two, spiritual birth in the midst of rejection. Most people will say no, but in the middle of it, God is bringing spiritual birth. He is bringing spiritual birth to people. In the middle of the rejection, he told you that's how it's going to happen. You mine. You'll find it in in the dirt. Third, supernatural strength and weakness. You can't save a person. The hearts you encounter are unbreakable by human means, but you have far, far more than human means with you, my friend. Fourth, massive joys over deep hurts, massive joys over deep hurts. You will encounter deep hurt in the church, but not as massive as the joys you will encounter there. So when you see a new child of God come to life, it's a sweet deal, man. It's a sweet deal. Like when a mom births a baby, I haven't done that. But when a mom births a baby, you know, there's a whole bunch of work that just happened right there, but there's a love that transcends all that work. And that kid will hurt you but the love that transcends. And finally, this, the fifth one is prayerful anticipation for each person. Prayerful anticipation for each person. Check out 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19, and 23. I've kind of brought it down a little bit. He says, for though I am free of all, this is Paul, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. And those under the law that I might win those under the law and those under Outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. The sweet bit of compassion. So as we encounter the people around us, resting in the spirit, embracing the mission of God where we are going out with our great father who's gathering for himself his scattered children that we don't know their names and we don't know their times. But he does it, brings these yeses in the midst of the noes. We do it in prayerful anticipation for each one of them. Our job is not to go out there and say gospel. Pff, if you want it, take it, our, our, our goal is to encounter every soul and hope and pray that they will hear Christ. And we appeal to them out of Christ. We beg you on behalf of God, reconciled to God. So don't allow your thoughts to say, well, if God is searching out for children, then I just guess I got to go just drop the gospel word somewhere. No, no, no. Your heart joins his heart in compassion, and we plead with people. Listen to Jesus. Would you give me a moment to share Christ with you? Would you give me, uh, have you ever thought about Christ? Have you read about Christ recently? Have you, have you really listened to Christ um, earnestly like you've listened to some of the opponents of Christ lately? Like plead, plead with them. So the mission that God has is a family mission. It is God going out to gather into one the scattered children of God. We don't know who they are. And it makes them children, siblings of us, back with our gospel father. So in conclusion, our amazing adopting father is continuing his saving work. He has the kids scattered everywhere. It's his mission, and therefore that's our mission Don't live in the empty and waste of being divorced from our Father's mission. Or think that mission is some kind of lonely, awkward, or powerless sales obligation. God is going out on it. He has invited us to come along with it. He's commissioned us to come along with it. He's told us our part in it. To go with the message. To pray our hearts out in compassion and hope. And for those that say yes, to disciple them to let them understand their rights and privileges as sons and daughters of God and all the promises found in Jesus and equip them and get them ready to enter the world that God has put them in so they might do the same thing. Having been loved by such an amazing, amazing, proactive, seeking Father and Savior, let us go out with them to find our new brothers and sisters in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I just... uh, Confess to you that in the mind of, of me, at least, and I, and I suspect there's parallels with my friends and brothers and sisters here, that um, so often I forget you. And then so often I just use you for what I might gain off of you, not really listening to your heart. I empty out my heart, but I don't listen to your heart being emptied out. Just confess it's true, Father, and I thank you that you've not taken your love from me in that. I thank you that you've realigned, you keep realigning my heart in that. And I thank you that there's been so many times, Lord, where you've put the mission in front of me and given me joy to step into it and made the ways clear and the conversations clear. Um, You've saved souls for my eyes, Father. It's been amazing. But I pray for us, Father, that you would please help us. Let us not be able to talk about your love for us without remembering your love for them, Your love, what's beating on your heart. So, Father, may our hearts beat with your heart. Put us in tune with you, Father, I pray. I pray that you'd overcome our fears, um, overcome our short thoughts. Um, Let us with joy consider Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down in victory. Let us remember that. Let the love of Christ compel us. Let the love of the Father compel us. So, Father, capture our hearts and move us. Give us eyes to see the world around us that so badly needs you. Let us not live in weakness, um, thinking that they are too strong or we are too weak. Things that are obviously true already, Lord, but may our hearts be drawn to you and the power of your Spirit. And the proactivity of your heart, Father, you are not the retired father, you're not the retired savior, you are the active father and savior, and you are currently gathering your children. So, Lord, give us energy and joy to, like, look for it and to want to be a part of it and delight in it. Father, I pray you would bring those opportunities for every one of my brothers and sisters here. Lord, let them see you saving people. Let them notice you stirring in the hearts of those that don't know you. Um. And let them see it and recognize it and take joy in it. Stoke their confidence in what you're doing, Father, please. I pray that for all of us. Make your way clear for us about how you want us to go out. Let us not be hindered by fear. Father, we love you and we thank you so much that you are our Father. We thank you so much that you've come to us in our darkness and you opened our eyes and you paid for our sin and you've given us your spirit and you've grown us and you have filled us with joys and given us each other. Thank you for being so good. Jesus, we also celebrate in communion in the next few moments that you did this saving work for us through your death on the cross. And you have made your great promise and covenant with us, Lord, that you won't leave us. That you have given us your spirit. And we now get to rule and reign with you forever. So please, pull our hearts together as we celebrate this in song and communion now. We love you. Thank you so much for loving us in Christ's name.